Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38 will be our entire dealing this morning, but I'm going to read verses 21 and 22 as we begin. Hope you have a Bible with you. If you don't, there's one under a chair close by you. We're on page 859 uh, in the chair Bibles. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 invites you to stand as we read the word of the Lord. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Lord, we ask now as we take up your holy word that you would instruct us, that you would cause us to understand what is here and why it is here, that you would lead us into believing that we would believe what we ought to and we would reject what we should, that we would turn away from false belief and turn our hearts to Christ and to him alone. Help us, Lord, in our distraction this morning to to look and to hear, to turn aside from phones and other things and just listen to your word and be instructed by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a moment recorded in this text that is significant, so significant in the history of the world, so incredible that the heavens are opened. I just just want you to think about that for a moment. This prompts the opening of the heavens and the Father speaks audibly, expressing his divine pleasure in his beloved Son. The question is, What do these events reveal? Why are they recorded? And why is the genealogy recorded right here with the baptism of Jesus? Here's what I want us to see today. The offense of the baptism of Jesus and his genealogy reveal that he is the son of Adam and the beloved son of God. And Luke's had a pattern. Talks about John, then he parallels it with Jesus. Talks about John parallels it with Jesus. So most recently, adult life and ministry of John. Now we turn to the adult life and ministry of Jesus. So in this account, we begin the ministry of Jesus with the Lord's baptism. Here's what I want you to notice. John's not mentioned in verse 21 and 22. He's implied. Now Luke is doing something significant here. He's letting you know We are now moving from John to exclusively focus on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we begin with his baptism. And what we see is that the events at the baptism of Jesus reveal that he is the beloved son of God. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now, let's remind ourselves this. Verse 3, chapter 3. And he went, this is John, into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this begs this question. Why was Jesus baptized then? If this is a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Turn with me to Matthew's gospel. Matthew anticipates that kind of question. So he writes in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is John, consented. So why was Jesus baptized? It is because he is the embodiment of righteousness. He purposely identifies here with the righteous actions of his people. Jesus did not come to John to confess sin or to repent of sin because he had none. He came to make himself one with those who did submit to the right, the right of baptism, in order that all of the law would be fulfilled, which was required. So here, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he publicly identifies himself with the sinners whom he came to save. Or as one pastor said it clearly, Jesus is saying in the baptism that he has come to stand in the place of sinners. Now that helps us to understand the very next short phrase and was praying. Doesn't tell us what he was praying, just and he was praying. So why is this significant? Why does Luke include this particular point that he was praying? If you read the entirety of Luke, it becomes a little clearer as to why he says this here. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So it's so significant what they see and hear Jesus doing that this disciple is prompted to say, teach us how. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, I'm not going to break all of this down. Let's focus in verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. At a minimum, at this moment, Jesus would have been practicing what he's teaching. At the moment of his baptism, he certainly would have been hallowing the name of the Father. He would have been giving glory to him, praying for the kingdom to come. That this prayer of Jesus at this moment is signifying his submission, his desire to do the will of the Father, which becomes absolutely clear in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus praying says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this prayer of Jesus is a submission to the will of the Father. 
So something more here than simply the baptism of Jesus is taking place. Something significant has begun. How how do we know this? Because the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. It's beyond some kind of earthly moment. This is beyond grabbing the attention of humanity. Yesterday, the United States had the attention of the world. What, what, What is happening as the Senate draws the trial to a close? People paying attention. This is way beyond any kind of moment like this. This moment is so significant in the history of redemption that the heavens are opened. And brothers and sisters, there will be a day when they open again. It will be the most significant day in the history of humanity when the heavens are opened and Christ is revealed. But here the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So this wasn't a ghostly image. It's bodily form like a dove. So there's no anointing with oil. There's no ceremony of man. The anointing of Jesus at this moment is the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove. Now remember, John said that he, speaking of Christ, would baptize, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember I said last week that's pointing to judgment, to purging. But here at the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends not in fire. He descends in bodily form like a dove. Now this points to the manner in which Jesus himself is going to conduct his ministry. When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, he said, for I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. Jesus did not come brandishing a sword. He came in gentleness. So the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I want want to pause here from explaining what's going on and make sure you see something and you see it clearly, that you see the Trinity, that you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is an overwhelming, influential, false doctrine that is spread throughout the United States. I'll give you the big word for it. It's called modalism. There's some very famous preachers that teach modalism. Modalism says that God has come or can come at different points in time in different forms. Sometimes he's father and sometimes he's son and sometimes the Holy Spirit. And they would say now primarily he's Holy Spirit. You don't see three different forms emerging here. What you see is each distinct member of the Godhead. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet they are one God as the Bible teaches elsewhere in the Scripture. Now, why point that out? 
Let me just simply say it. The Trinity is the identifying mark of the Christian faith. If you deny the Trinity, you deny Christianity. So these preachers can claim whatever they want to in their modalism and that they're just a different belief in Christianity. What they're proclaiming is not Christianity at all. We worship one God who is distinctly three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Back to the text. A voice came from heaven. Now whose voice is it? It's the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now why did the Father make this statement at this point in time? I'm going to give you three reasons. I could give you a lot more, but I'm going to give you three. Number one, this speaks to the eternal nature of the Trinity. When he says, I am well pleased, that is in an ongoing action. That's not at this moment in time. The tense of the verb is not saying, right now I'm pleased with you. I am. I always have been. I always will be. I am pleased with you. Secondly, this points to the sinlessness of Christ. That here he is, 30 years old, and lived a sinless life. Number three, it points to the coming work of the atonement. Because he is the Son of God, because he is sinless, he will go to the cross and die in our place, and this pleases the Father. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We hear the echoes of the Old Testament again, Luke bringing this to bear, making sure we see it. There are at least two dominant texts that influence what the Father speaks here. One is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This is the kingly psalm, the psalm about the coming king. And it says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The day of the baptism of Jesus Christ signifies something new. It signifies the beginning of his mission and his ministry. In our culture, we just had it just a few weeks ago, we have an inauguration, a ceremony, a celebration as the president, the leader of our land takes charge. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance involved. In other cultures, they have kings or queens. That begins with what's called a coronation. Now here in this, this text, some people argue this is inauguration, others a coronation because this is the king. I don't care which term you use. What I want you to make sure you see is there's no heavenly parade. There's no crowd gathered. We're, 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 we're in the wilderness by the Jordan. Maybe there was a small crowd, but it wasn't a crowd because they knew what was going to happen. And in this moment, it is so significant that the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. Now Luke's going to go on and make it clear that this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then he shares the genealogy of Christ. Now I don't know how your brain works, but my brain says, why is this here? Why is the genealogy of Jesus right here? Because when you open Matthew's gospel, it begins right away with the explanation of the genealogy of Christ and the birth. We've already gone through the birth. We're now at the adult life of Jesus. Why is his genealogy at this point? I'll seek to answer it. 
And what we want to see here is that this genealogy reveals that he is the son of Adam. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, this would have been cultural, even some would argue biblical, because in Numbers chapter 4, verses 46 and 47, it tells you that that's when the Levite could begin their priestly service at 30 years of age. Origen, one of the early preachers uh, in, the, in the Christian church, he ties together 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years with Luke chapter 1, verse 33, about the reign of Jesus. It says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will be no end. So even though it begins here, the ministry begins, the kingdom of Jesus will never end. Then he launches into an explanation of genealogy. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, did you see that parenthetical thought? As was supposed. So what's Luke saying? Well, I think obviously one of the things he's saying is, you think Joseph is his father, he's not. Jesus is immaculately conceived. He is born of the Spirit. He is both fully God and fully man, conceived in the womb of Mary. Now that leads to a lot of people. So if you take and compare this genealogy, because it says the son of Joseph, and then it goes on from there, and you compare it to Matthew, you're going to see their different lists of names. So... Did either Luke or Matthew make a mistake or is something else happening here? And the predominant thought among theologians is this is describing the genealogy of Mary. Even though there's no women mentioned, it's all tied to men. Now, I am not going to die on the hill today and we're not going to sit and argue about it and don't argue about it in your growth group. That's not the point. The point is very significant, and let's just make a few. Luke begins his genealogy with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, verse 23. He ends his genealogy with the beginning, the Son of God. The one who began it all. It ends, if you will, with God, the one which there is no end or beginning. The majority of this list, which I'm not going to butcher by trying to read, the vast majority of this list are unknown people. They are not mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture. There are some significant individuals that are necessary in the history of redemption. David and Abraham, particularly. They're showing that Jesus is the promised one in fulfillment of God's covenant with both David and Abraham. It's a quote. The major theme is that Jesus possesses the proper roots to be the promised agent of God. He is in David's line. He is the kingly figure. He is Abraham's seed, pointing to the Abrahamic promise. And he's Adam's seed. He relates to all of humanity. He is the Son of God. God cre has created this line to culminate in Jesus. Salvation, then, is the product of God's design. It is the object of God's careful planning. In Jesus, there are no historical surprises. The genealogy of Jesus makes it clear to us 
that Jesus is a real man. I think that's kind of lost on us culturally. I'm not exactly sure why it's lost on us culturally, but it's lost. So let, let, me, let me try to help you see how significant it is in the terms of history. Wycliffe Bible translators were in Papua New Guinea translating the Bible among a small micro people group. The translator decided that he was going to skip the first chapter of Matthew and go directly to the second chapter to translate. He translated all the way through chapter 28, and he came back and then set to work to translate the first chapter. He was hung up on how do you translate the word begat in this language. So he called the village leaders together, and he began to discuss with them how to translate this word. And he noticed, as they were talking, the men became excited. Once the first few words came out of the translator's mouth, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat. Finally, one of the village leaders spoke up and said, do you mean these are real men? Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're real. And then the leader said, that's what we do. We have a custom. And, and we thought that what you were bringing us was just white man's stories. But, but now you're saying... Abraham's a real man? Yeah, that's what we've been telling you all along. We didn't understand that, but now we're starting to believe. So that night they gathered the village. And instead of starting with Luke chapter 2, the village leader stood up and he started with Matthew chapter 1. And as he read the chapter, belief swept through the village because they believed that Jesus was real. He wasn't something made up. He wasn't a mythical figure. He was real. Now, brothers and sisters, don't forget what Luke told you. I write these things that you may have certainty, certainty, concerning the things you have been taught. So I come back to my question and I ask, why record the genealogy at this point in the gospel? Let me just give you a couple of differences with Matthew. Matthew places the genealogy at the start of his account and leads to Jesus' birth. Luke links the genealogy to Jesus' adult life, not his birth. Matthew begins with Abraham and looks forward to David and then to Jesus. He doesn't go back to Adam. Luke works backwards. He starts with Jesus and ends with Adam as the son of God. Luke places the genealogy in connection with this declaration of the father. This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He's showing us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Luke places the genealogy between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. Now, this is significant because he, he ends with Adam. 
What does Adam do in the face of temptation? He sins. But the second Adam, Jesus, the better Adam, the one who is the head of humanity, never sins. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Luke's message of hope stems from the reality that Jesus, as the obedient second Adam, has come to offer salvation to those under the curse of the first Adam because of his disobedience. So you've got to ask the question then, so what? What, what, do we, what do we do with this text? It's not what we do. It's what we believe. And what should we believe? Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is the only one who can save sinners. You say, I already know that. Okay. Then let's pretend we're having a cup of coffee and we're talking. Jesus is the only one who saves sinners. Why? Tell me why. Why is Jesus the only one that can do that? What makes him any different than me? What, what makes him any different than any world leader alive today? Why is Jesus the only one who can save sinners? Here's why. Because only one could be said of the Father, this is my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah the prophet who clearly prophesies of the coming Messiah. Hear these words from Isaiah 42, verse 1, echoing in the words of the Father at the baptism of Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. My soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will cry aloud, or will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't mean to belittle anything. You've got to listen through what I'm going to say in the next few moments. There's a lot of talk about justice today. Justice, justice, justice. People need justice. And if you're looking to Jesus, that primarily he came to bring social justice, corrective justice to the way human beings treat each other, that's not his primary purpose. Now notice I'm using words, primary. The primary purpose of Jesus is to bring forth the justice of God as it relates to sinful humanity. That's me and you. We are the bruised reed. We are the faintly burning wick. And here's what we deserve. We deserve to be broke off and blown out. That's the just thing God should have done. 
But instead, God sent his son, the one in whom his soul delights, to bring forth justice. Christ came to satisfy the justice of God on our behalf. He died in our place. He took what we deserved. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So to all, to all who are present here today, who look to Christ and believe, who trust that he alone can save us from our sin and from judgment, to all who call on his name, You know what he calls you? His sons and daughters. Through Christ and through Christ alone, the Father says to you and to me, if we are in Christ, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. Apart from the work of Christ the Son at Calvary, no one, no one will ever hear God say, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God cannot and will not say to flawed humanity those things. However, hear the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. It is upon these new creations, God's sons and daughters, that his pleasure now abides. This is the gospel. And you may be saying this is unbelievable. And I say to you, Luke wrote, so that you might be convinced. It's not some obscure story about a baptism celebration. It's about the beginning of the ministry of the sinless Savior who died in our place. Look to Christ today. Repent of your sin and trust in him alone to save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus I confess, we confess, you alone are worthy. You alone could and did accomplish our salvation. You alone save sinful humanity. There is no other way to the Father except through you. So Lord, I pray for those who have held on to their sin, who have held on to their life, who have trusted in their own good works, May they repent of that today and confess their need of Christ and turn from their sin, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Trusting that you died in their place and that you rose again. Believing that you alone can and that you have secured salvation. Lord, I pray now that your people, your children, 
would hallow your name and honor you in this place.